0: To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org/slash donate. And if you enjoy this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. Are we supposed to take the Bible literally? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. Are we supposed to take the Bible literally? Well, that depends on what literally literally means. Do we mean that God, who is our rock, is literally an actual rock? Or that Yeshua, who is the door, is literally an actual door? Or by literally, do we mean We believe that God literally created the universe in six days, that Moses literally received the stone tablets from God, and that Yeshua literally died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, actually saving us from death and providing a real way to live with him forever. To take the Bible literally means that we accept what it says as factual and true, that even the most unbelievable things it says are trustworthy and real. But that doesn't mean that even though most of Scripture has a plain sense and face-value understanding, that it was written exclusively in non-figurative language. On the contrary, the message of God's perfect Word has been conveyed to us through the creative literary forms of man. And so that we aren't confused or mistaken about what we read, we need to be aware of the types of literature and figures of speech that make up the Bible. So today, I want to affirm the idea of taking the Bible literally, of accepting it as factual and true as written, but to also recognize how the authors convey that truth, sometimes in figurative, non-literal ways. So let's start by breaking down the basic types of literature or genres that we find in the Bible. First, a full third of the biblical books are written as historical narrative. In other words, these sections recount actual events in history, and they narrate or describe for us what took place. For example, the book of Genesis. In the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth, the earth had been nothingness and emptiness. Or the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here we see that Moses and John are simply telling us what happened. That's historical narrative. The narrative sections of the Bible, then, are generally going to be more literal in nature. The author expects us to understand the ordinary sense of what he's saying. The books of the Bible that are primarily historical narrative are, starting with the Torah, Genesis, about half of Exodus, most of Numbers, and some of Deuteronomy. The rest of the historical narrative in the Hebrew Scriptures are in Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, about two thirds of Daniel and Jonah. In the New Covenant Scriptures, the historical narrative books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, and John. Now, a subset of historical narrative biblical literature is the remainder of the Torah, which recounts God's communication of His commands to Israel. For example, Leviticus one one through two says, "And Adonai called to Moshe." And he spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, and then begins with the commands for burnt offerings. These Torah commands then, written as historical narrative, include the other half of Exodus, all of Leviticus, some of Numbers, and most of Deuteronomy. So there's not going to be a lot of mystery within the historical narratives, at least not in terms of what the author is recounting for us. Obviously, these are still part of the Bible and therefore full of spiritual truth, but as a form of literature, we're supposed to read and understand them primarily as historical documents. The next type of literature is prophecy, which accounts for about 20% of the biblical books. As opposed to historical narrative, prophecy generally speaks about the future and relays things to Israel as seen through the eyes of God. The giveaway that what we're reading is prophecy is usually that it's either written by a known prophet or the text indicates a heavenly source. For example, Isaiah begins with the vision of Yeshayahu that he had seen concerning Yehuda and Yerushalayim. And Zephaniah starts the word of Adonai that had been given to Zephaniah. So while biblical prophecy is not limited to specific books of the Bible, there are specific prophetic books and they are Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the major prophets, and about the last third of Daniel, and then Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and Revelation. The prophetic writings then contain predictions or warnings about the future, including prophecies about the Messiah, as well as what God is thinking and feeling about Israel. The usual plain language can often depict extraordinary things, but sometimes the vision that the authors describing is as mysterious as it is incomprehensible. The third main biblical literary type is poetry, which describes the style of writing more than the content itself. While it doesn't much resemble the rhyme and meter we're familiar with in English poetry, biblical poetry has forms all its own and is used as a creative means of communication in the same way we might express ourselves in poetry or in song. Bible publishers generally do us a favor to let us know we're reading poetry through poetic typography. The text is formatted to look like poetry rather than normal paragraphs. Take Psalm 119, verses one through two, for example. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. So even though poetry crops up all over the Bible, there are a handful of books written exclusively or almost exclusively in poetic form, which are Job, the Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. Ecclesiastes, which contains some poetry, is also often lumped in with these writings, being considered as part of the so-called wisdom literature, along with Job and Proverbs. But while each of these books are unique in their content, they find themselves in this category primarily for their similarity in writing style. While the poetry communicates deep spiritual and practical truth, it can often take a less direct path to get there, leaning into its poetic form and employing literary devices that more dramatically express its message. That said, just because these sections of the Bible are written in poetic form, it in no way indicates that what the author is saying is any less historically accurate or true. It's simply written as poetry. And finally, the last main literary type in the Bible, comprising about another third, is the remainder of the New Covenant scriptures that I haven't already mentioned, namely the personal letters from James, Paul, Peter, Jude, John, and the book of Hebrews. These letters are actual correspondence between the authors and either an individual recipient or a body of believers, often in a particular location. Such as is stated in verse 1 of the book of James, or Yaakov, which says, From Yaakov, a slave of God and of the Master Yeshua the Messiah, to the twelve tribes of Yisrael, who are in the dispersion. Shalom. The content of these letters is often instructive, corrective, or exhortative, and the writing style is generally plain and straightforward. We also sometimes get to see the author's emotions and points of view, and are often able to infer first-century life among the believers, given the issues and problems that the authors were addressing. Since these letters were meant to be shared and read aloud among the early believers, we should also read them as distant recipients of the emissary's personal instruction and insight. So those are the four main types of biblical literature—historical narrative, prophecy, poetry, and personal letters. While there can be a certain amount of overlap within the individual books, generally speaking, each one can find a home in one of these four basic categories. But even though we can categorize the books in this way, they can each still contain a wide variety of figurative speech, which is anything but literal. When we're talking about figures of speech— This differs from literal speech in that something written literally means that what the text actually says is what the text actually means. I used this example in episode 11 about the plain sense of scripture, that when it says Yeshua wept in John 11.35, that's literally what it means. It means he cried. But in John 10, when Yeshua is explaining that only through him can we be saved, he says it figuratively by saying, I am the door. He's not a literal actual door, but he is the figurative door through which we all need to enter to receive eternal life. So figures of speech are meant to convey and communicate ideas in a non-literal way, in a way that makes a different kind of impact on the reader by using figurative concepts to represent concrete ideas. So even more than knowing the different literary genres of the Bible, we need to be prepared to encounter different figures of speech. So let's familiarize ourselves with some of the more common ones right now. Probably the most prevalent biblical figures of speech you might remember from Mrs. Miller's 7th grade English class, which are similes and metaphors. Both of these do the same thing. They're used to compare seemingly unrelated things. But while a simile says that one thing is like or as another thing, a metaphor says that one thing is another thing, not literally, but figuratively. So for example, we find a simile in Numbers 13.33, when the spies came back from spying out the promised land and report that the people they found living there were so huge that, quote, we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. So the spies used a simile Comparing themselves to grasshoppers to describe how small they felt. They didn't think they were actual grasshoppers. Yeshua also often employed similes, as in Matthew 13 31, when he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. So here the master is comparing the kingdom of heaven with a grain of seed, in this case, the tiniest of seeds with the ability to grow exponentially. He wasn't saying that a mustard seed is literally indistinguishable from the kingdom of heaven. Metaphors, on the other hand, can be a little less easy to spot because they're not given away by the words like or as. For example, we find multiple metaphors in Psalm 18 too. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So David is using metaphor here to compare Adonai to a rock, a shield, and a horn, even though he's obviously none of those. He's using that imagery to convey the type of deliverance and salvation that Adonai provides. Yeshua also used metaphor as in Matthew twenty-six, twenty-six through 28, when during his last Passover, as they were eating, Yeshua, having taken some matzah bread and having blessed it, broke it and, giving it to the disciples, said, Take, eat, this is my body. And having taken the cup and having given thanks, he gave to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. So here the master used metaphor to compare his body and blood to the matzah and fruit of the vine, using them to depict how or to associate him with the remembrance of the Passover. Based on the plain sense of the text, they were not literally his flesh and blood. Metaphors are all over the place in the Bible. Obviously, God is not a bird, even though Psalm 91.4 says that he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings, you will find refuge. And we obviously don't have hearts made of actual stone. Even though Ezekiel 36:26 says, "And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh." Matthew 5:13 says, "You are the salt of the land." And in John 6:51, Yeshua says, "I am the living bread." And Paul's Jewish and Gentile olive tree in Romans 11 is all one big metaphor. Using metaphor doesn't make what's being conveyed any less true, but it does make it figurative. And to attempt to take it literally can cause us to get it wrong, in both our understanding and our application. We need to be careful not to make doctrine based on figures of speech. Another literary device that Yeshua uses frequently, which are often extended similes, is the parable or analogy. These are basically short stories that illustrate a spiritual point, again, comparison. An example of this is the analogy of the sower, beginning in Luke chapter 8, verse 5. The sower went out to sow his seed, and in his sowing some indeed fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the heaven devoured it. And other seed fell upon the rock, and having sprung up, it withered, because of not having moisture. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns, having sprung up with it, choked it. And other seed fell into the good ground, and having sprung up, it made fruit a hundred times what was sown. Saying these things, Yeshua was calling out, He who is having ears to hear, let him hear. So Yeshua wasn't recounting an actual event about a sower and his seed, but teaching a spiritual principle through a story based on people's general experience. Yeshua would often leave analogies like this unexplained, but in this case, He clarified it for his disciples, beginning in verse 11. The seed is the word of God, and those sown beside the road are those having heard the word. But then the accuser comes and takes up the word from their heart. And those sown upon the rock are they who receive it with joy. But these have no root, and in time of temptation they fall away. And that seed which fell to the thorns, these are choked through anxieties and riches and pleasures of life but that seed sown in the good ground. These are they who with an upright and good heart, having heard the word, retain it and with perseverance bear fruit. So in this analogy, Yeshua compares the word of God to seed sown by a sower. And he's illustrating the concept of why it's important for us to receive the word of God with a good and fertile heart. We do need to be careful with analogies though, as well as other literary devices, not to mix our metaphors, so to speak. For example, in Matthew 13, Yeshua makes another analogy in which seed doesn't represent the word of God, but people. It would be a mistake to draw a conclusion between people and God's word based on two separate analogies or similes. That's an inappropriate use and limitation of figures of speech. In this case, the seed represents two different things. Because Yeshua is illustrating two different ideas. It's not any more mysterious than that. So, analogies like similes and metaphors are another literary device that compares seemingly unrelated things. And finally, one of my favorite figures of speech that's also employed in the Bible is hyperbole, which is intentional exaggeration used to make a point. One example of hyperbole I've used a couple of times is Luke 14, 26, where Yeshua says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yet even his own life, he is not able to be my disciple. I explained in episode 17 how Yeshua is using hyperbole here, especially in light of the parallel passage in Matthew 10, to stress the importance of loving and following him. The master also uses hyperbole when he teaches in Matthew 19.24 that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the reign of God. Obviously, a camel could never fit through the eye of a needle, and that's Yeshua's point. He's saying that a rich man who loves his possessions can never enter into the kingdom of God. We also see Paul using hyperbole mixed with a little wordplay and some sarcasm in Galatians 5, where he's discussing the problem of Gentile believers cutting themselves off from the Messiah by seeking circumcision. Paul's clearly feeling particularly antagonistic toward those who are trying to persuade the Gentiles to get circumcised. And in verse 12, he says, oh, how I wish that even they who are unsettling you would just castrate themselves. They want you to get circumcised? I've got a better idea. So either Paul is serious that he literally wants these people to take more than a little off the top, or he's using hyperbole to express his outrage at the way they're undermining the Gentile believer's freedom in Messiah. So hyperbole is used when the speaker or writer wants to really grab your attention and drive home a point, and they use intentionally exaggerated language to do it. So the Bible isn't just our guidebook for life, but it's a work of great literature filled with various types of writing that showcase man's literary creativity. And when it comes to figures of speech, I didn't even come close to mentioning all of them, which include things like personification, allusions, allegories, idioms, and even literary devices like parallelism. Knowing the different literary genres and figures of speech in the Bible isn't simply interesting background information, but are important to be able to recognize to help us avoid misunderstanding and misinterpreting God's word. If we don't do these things, what do we do for example with Joshua 10:12 through 14 which says, "At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven" and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There had been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So clearly, this is written as historical narrative. And if it weren't for the astounding claim made here in these verses, we wouldn't even give it a second thought. So now we're faced with the question, could the sun and moon actually have stopped moving? Well, we could refuse to accept it by suggesting that the author was just being figurative, but it doesn't read that way at all, does it? Everything in this passage is telling us from a literary standpoint that this is an account of an actual event, giving us even more reason to believe that it's so. For a whole day, the sun literally stopped moving. It's the same thing with Jonah through 17 which says, So the men picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And in chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It's incredible, right? It's unbelievable. But again, it's written as historical narrative, meaning that the author is expecting us to take him literally. And do you know who does take the book of Jonah literally? Yeshua. And we know this because he states what happened to Jonah as fact in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's what Yeshua said. Jonah was literally swallowed by a fish and survived for three days. So when we don't know what's literal and what's figurative, we might be easily persuaded to disbelieve things that the Bible says are true. If we can't accept that the sun literally stood still, or that Jonah literally lived and prayed for three days inside a fish, then maybe there are other fantastic things in the Bible that we shouldn't take literally, like the resurrection of Yeshua or the promise of eternal life. The misunderstanding can also go the other way, mistaking the figurative for the literal. One of my favorite examples comes from Judaism and the invention of the mezuzah. The mezuzah is a small case containing a tiny parchment of scripture, which is then affixed to the main doorpost of the home. In some homes, every doorway gets a mezuzah except for bathrooms. Setting aside for a moment that in Hebrew, mezuzah means doorpost, not a box you affix to a doorpost, the idea for Judaism's mezuzah comes from the Ve'a Hafta, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6-9, through 9, where Moshe says, Take to heart these instructions with which I charge you this day. Impress them upon your children. Recite them when you stay at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them serve as a symbol on your forehead. Inscribe them on the doorposts of your house, And on your gates. This is also the portion of scripture where tefillin or phylacteries come from. Like the mezuzah, tefillin includes a box containing a parchment that is wrapped to the forehead with a strap extending down the arm to the hand, just like Deuteronomy 6 describes, according to this translation. The only problem is, verses 8 through 9 are figurative, not literal. How do I know? Well, first of all, Moshe said a whole lot more that day. what could fit on a small piece of parchment? Even if your solution wasn't an amulet affixed to your doorway, is it really practical to inscribe the book of Deuteronomy on your doorpost, or to keep it strapped to your head? But more than that, the Torah itself tells us that what has since become the tefillin and the mezuzah isn't literal, but figurative. We just have to look at Exodus chapter 13, which says in verses 7 through 9, Throughout the seven days of the feast, unleavened bread, matzah, shall be eaten, and this shall serve you as a sign on your hand, and as a reminder on your forehead, in order that the teaching of the Lord may be in your mouth. And also in verses 13 through 16, you must redeem every firstborn male among your children, and so it shall be as a sign upon your hand, and as a symbol on your forehead, that with a mighty hand The Lord freed us from Egypt. So, here, just as in Deuteronomy, Israel is told to put signs on their foreheads and hands, namely matzah and their firstborn male children. Does that mean we're also supposed to literally bind bread and people to our hands and heads? So, what are our options here? Well, we can literally try to write Deuteronomy on our doorposts and strap it to our heads and hands along with the Passover matzah and our firstborn male children. Or we can obey it as it's intended, as a figure of speech instructing us for the very reason that it says in Exodus 13.9, in order that the teaching of the Lord may be in our mouth. When we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we arise, when we keep the feast, when we redeem our firstborn— And when we pass through the doorways of our homes, whether to go inside to be with our family or to go out to interact with the world. So Moses never commanded the literal writing or affixing of the commands on our heads or the doors and gates of our homes, but to have those commands always at the forefront of our minds, repeatedly in our mouths and continually guiding the actions of our hands. This kind of misunderstanding also gave way to the Christian practice of communion, beginning with the Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist and the belief that the bread and fruit of the vine are changed in substance into the literal body and blood of Yeshua. And again, rather than understanding the scriptures as metaphorical, they were taken literally. Having taken some of the matzah, he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And having taken the cup, he said, Drink of it, all of you for this is my blood of the covenant that for many is being poured out for the release from sins and aside from the fact that the torah forbids everyone universally from eating blood as well as forbidding human sacrifice we know that yeshua meant all this figuratively first because of common sense and second because of the context in which he said it in matthew 26:29 he continues And I say to you that I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you new in the reign of my Father. Clearly, the fruit of the vine is still the fruit of the vine, which Yeshua himself intends to one day drink again with his disciples. He's not going to eat his own flesh and drink his own blood. As I said earlier, Yeshua was teaching the disciples to remember his covenantal death as fulfillment of the Passover. Just as Adonai had delivered Israel, releasing them from the bondage in Egypt, Yeshua's blood was about to be poured out for everyone for our release from sin. In telling his disciples to eat the bread and drink the cup, Yeshua wasn't inventing a strange new ritual, but explaining how he figuratively embodied, yet literally fulfilled, the defining deliverance of the people of Israel. So, the failure to recognize literal as literal. And figurative as figurative can leave us disbelieving the truth and believing in the imagined. Whether we're reading historical narrative, prophecy, poetry, or personal letters, or wrestling with a simile, metaphor, analogy, or hyperbole, we need to be able to take into account the many genres and figures of speech of the Bible. We need to treat the Bible not just as a spiritual document, but as a God breathed, humanly authored work. Of literature. Otherwise, it can leave us unmoored from fantastic fact and clinging with our lives to rationalized fiction. Should we take the Bible literally as factual and true? Of course we should, but never forgetting that some of that truth has been conveyed to us in the most creative, figurative, and non-literal of ways. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment or shoot me an email at, Kevin at perfectword.org. That's Kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.